Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. We have so many exciting things coming up for you in 2022, starting with our webinar from Concept to Creation, the weekend of February 5th and 6th. This is an opportunity for educators to create a project from any concept you want to explore. We'll walk through the Rebel Educator concept-driven project creation process so that you gain an understanding of how to weave subjects together, create an engaging entry event, and build an authentic experience that your students will love. Coming this summer, we will repeat this process in a more in-depth three-day workshop. Look for upcoming dates sharing soon. If you're local to the San Francisco Bay Area, UP Academy, our progressive elementary school, is now enrolling for fall of 2022. And we'd love to have you watch for the Rebel Educator book launch coming in March of 2022. So welcome Rebel Educators to this episode of the Rebel Educator podcast. Welcome everyone. I am here with Chris Menager. Chris is a founding partner of E-Squared Education Systems, which is a bridge from where you are now and where you want to be, helping you link with collaborators and changemakers who have the diverse experience, understanding, ideas, and skills you need to connect with the people and organizations that work with you to transform, design, and implement innovative, collaborative cultures of learning. So what that really means is that he designs learning frameworks for a changing world. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Tanya. Lovely to be here. Lovely to have you. Tell me about E-Squared. You're building an educational ecosystem that believes social capital is the cornerstone of thriving communities and human-centered learning design is the key to social capital. So tell me a little bit more about how this came about, a little bit about your founding story and, and what you do and where you're going. Sure, Tanya, um, and thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. I suppose for me, a couple of years ago, um, maybe about six months before the global pandemic that turned our lives upside down, after about 16 years in the industry as a, as a teacher, I was really passionate about actualizing the learning that we do every day all around us. And I sort of felt that the systems that we have in place, the formal systems that we have in place in schools whilst they served a purpose, it didn't speak to me in terms of um, recognizing those learning opportunities. Uh, and I really wanted to create a mechanism or a means to identify that, to highlight it, and to actualize it. So hence was born E-squared. And, and the notion around E-squared is that it's um, an amplification of our learning competencies and the social capital, the, the lived wisdom in community, and that together we really are better. So it's to the power of two or many and working together, we can achieve a lot. So are you working primarily with school leaders or school districts or student groups or teams of organizations? What does that look like? It's a good question. And I think my experience has perhaps been similar to a lot of edupreneurs, you know, yourself included. You sort of go off on one particular path and then you, you evolve as you iterate. So initially, the idea was to work uniquely with schools, 
But what I found was as I sort of unpacked those opportunities, I realized that there was just as much potential elsewhere in the community as well. So I do work with community groups. I do work with professional associations, be it psychologists or architects. And I do work with schools and, and government agencies. So what I like about that is that, again, it, it sort of identifies and it, and it acknowledges the capacity and, and the knowledge that's out there. And it's a vehicle to really tap into it and to allow it to manifest itself and, and for people to grow from that learning experience. Yeah. Some of the work that I've done is working with organizations and finding the concept within the project that they're working on. Um, so groups of project managers or, you know, you mentioned different professional organizations and using that project-based learning framework with other teams of people. How do you find it works when you bring, you know, what you learned from 16 years as a teacher in an education into a completely different organizational structure? I love it. I really enjoy it because it's sort of second nature. And it sort of reminds me that in a classroom, we're performers, really. We're actors in that play and we, we're jacks of all trades. And so for me, it's, it's not daunting or it doesn't concern me to sort of walk, step into different contexts. But what I've noticed is that a lot of people have difficulty identifying exactly what it is that we do. And they like to be able to label, okay, so are you here as a trainer in coaching or as a insurance expert, if you're talking to insurers or taxation, whatever, what have you. But the beauty of being an educator is that we can seamlessly sort of slide into all sorts of contexts because it's not about the product or it's not about the topic. It's more about the context and understanding what makes it work in the background, the dynamics that make it work. And so if we can help and if we can facilitate that process, that learning process, then we, we can apply that to any context, can't we? Within reason, yeah, if there's a really technical issue, if it's science or I'm not going to give any sort of advice on um, the technical component, but what I can certainly do is help those experts to unpack whatever it is that they're trying to achieve. And I'm looking through some of your work and, and the objective of building capacities of people and looking at the idea of that personal connection and that the story is key. And I love, you know, I tell my personal story quite a bit when I talk about founding the school and the loss of my daughter and the school really being her legacy. Um, so what is what is kind of your founding story, you know, beyond, yeah, you worked for 16 years as a teacher, but what was what was the challenge that really led you into edupreneurship? I think I was fortunate enough to grow up in a family that was very close. And, um, you know, we spent a lot of time around the kitchen table discussing every single possible topic under the sun. And my parents always really encouraged me to, or all of us, I grew up with um, three brothers, so four very loud and rambunctious boys. But they always encouraged us to have an opinion and to sort of um, follow through with the rationale and the logic of what we were thinking. So um, come back to your question. I think I've always acknowledged that everything is a learning experience and that I, I don't know the answer and I need to grapple with it. And so my, um, my professional trajectory has been quite diverse and I suppose non-linear to use a technical term. I really sort of went through a process of crossing off the checklist of things that I didn't want to do in order to find the things that I wanted to do. And that immersive journey really helped me to identify the things that resonated and the things that didn't resonate. And so to give you a, you know, a really tangible example, Tanya, this morning I thought to myself, 
I could sit down in my office at home. It's a room like every other. It's a bit sterile. Or I could go down to the beach after the storm that we just had, and now it's calm, and we could look at the beautiful view, and, and I could be in that environment. Or I could sit in my garden with my chooks in the background and identify something that really resonates with me, the greenery, the fresh air. And I chose to do that because that's what speaks to me. It makes me more comfortable, and hopefully that allows me to then tap into the thoughts I want to share with you more easily. Yeah, you made me think, um, I just finished reading the book Range. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've, I've got it on my shelf. It's a brilliant book. His analogy of the Air Force and the seats that they invented, the uh, adjustable seats, mm-hmm. so as to not just design a fixed product for the average person. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about a different part in the book when he talks about Van Gogh and how Van Gogh essentially did the same thing that you're saying, went through so many different iterations and trying to be really good at lots of different things that just weren't his thing and checking off everything that didn't work until finding the thing that really resonated and really allowed him to show his genius. Yeah. What's interesting, Tanya, is if we gave children the opportunity or when we give children the opportunity to immerse themselves into that experiential process, then we maximize their opportunity of being fulfilled and to do something meaningful. But instead, we sort of have developed this idea that success means productivity in a specific way and achievement looks like this, you know. And, and again, we define that very, uh, very deliberately and very specifically. And I think we do that to the detriment of that capacity and that uniqueness that every child and every person can offer. And so when we allow ourselves, when we step back and we don't put those expectations or that pressure on ourselves, we actually give more opportunity for the inner beauty to come through. And I think the curiosity to come through too, when we don't have an expectation of an exact final product, there's no prototype for where you're going. But when we open that up and allow the curiosity to really take the lead and release ourselves from that expectation or what it is that we're supposed to deliver, then we can create really amazing things and really beautiful things. Absolutely. One of the things we know about learning is that when we're able to move into an emotional state, right? When we're really engaged in something, when we're really interested in something, or when something makes us stop and think and say, wait, wait, what? Just wait, what? No, like that didn't connect with what I thought was going to happen. That allows us to really amplify our performance and really become curious. And that's what I try and do, Tanya. So one of the models that I designed is called Resonance Squared. And I've really attempted to deliberately identify how we can create those learning contexts by identifying what resonates in terms of our hearing, what we can see, what we can feel, what we can smell. And if we can pack all that up together and allow it to talk to our gut instinct, our sixth sense, but then over and above all that, our seventh sense of balance, which is arguably the most important one, because if we're unbalanced, how can we possibly perform? Then if we get all that right, then we increase the likelihood of allowing ourselves the opportunity to fulfill that curiosity and to follow that piece of string to the very end. Do you see what I mean? I do. There's an exercise we do with the kids. That's the five, four, three, two, one. And it's going through the five senses, like you said, like it's a mindfulness exercise of, you know, look around and notice with your eyes, see five new things, and then take a moment and listen to four new things. And then 
smell, see if you can smell three different things. Um, and then you go through your sensations down to one and just recentering where you are. And I think that for our young students, that allows us to bring immediate balance into the classroom that suddenly they've stopped whatever external stuff is coming in that might be really stimulating and taken for a moment and just really noticed without judgment. Do you know what I love about that, Tanya, is that to do something like that as a anecdotal exercise in a class without really shining the spotlight or formalizing it and drawing attention to it increases the likelihood of establishing those daily habits for the kids. I know my own children sometimes in their educational experience, they'll say to me, oh, we get sat down and we get told we're going to do social emotional learning now. And as soon as they hear that, their eyes sort of glaze over and they're like, oh, this doesn't speak to me. The magic is taken away. Whereas when you describe what you've just done um, or what your teachers do and what your school is advocating for is again, acknowledging that there's a wealth of lived wisdom and capacity there if we allow ourselves to engage with it and if we allow ourselves to allow it to emerge in a less formalized and procedural manner that really honors our, our capacity. Yeah, I feel, I mean, on one hand, I feel like it's our duty just as adults, regardless of school, like to try and teach the children and the next generation the things that we've learned, right? It goes back thousands of years into storytelling tradition, like we're passing down the things that we've learned about life and how to take care of our bodies and ourselves and our minds is definitely one of those things. And so to hear you talk about balance as a seventh sense, I'm like, yeah, like I do that in my life. I quickly realize when things are out of balance and I notice because I forget things, things fall off my calendar, I miss emails and that's stuff that I don't normally do. But as soon as I'm over capacity and out of balance, all of those things happen. And like you said, when we opened the school, we did a special. There was a social emotional learning class. It's like, okay, for an hour on Friday, there's social emotional learning. And we had a teacher come in and teach it and check off that box, right? Which I think is what so many schools do. But we realized that wasn't really solving any issues. Our kids weren't really gaining much from it. And it wasn't bleeding into the rest of the culture or the vocabulary of the school. And so we switched that model and instead we do our professional development training on mindfulness and on social emotional learning. And we have trainers that used to come in and teach the kids now come in and teach the educators instead. <laughs> and then the educators can lead those lessons. And then that vocabulary and that culture takes place throughout the whole school. And we can become a much more mindful community and we can do things like stop and do a five senses. Or stop and talk about what zone we're in or stop and talk about, you know, how we're frustrated because talking through all of those emotions and the things every day and in the moment is on one hand what helps us learn because we need to have that emotional shift to really have a deeper learning experience, but also helps us learn just how to be humans and interact with each other, which you can't learn if you're doing a, an app, you know, <laughs> This is the beauty of what we do. And if you take, you know, your explanation there, there are so many themes weaved into what you just discussed that you can unpack. If you want to give yourself the time and if you want to allow yourself to engage with that, you know, the, the learning opportunities there in, in just that little explanation that you gave. So for example, I just picked up that you're, you know, you're talking about creating, um, or empowering the, the agency in teachers and in students. We're talking about building that social capital 
and learning from each other. We're talking about creating the right conditions for learning. There's so many hidden theories, and yet we don't have to give them labels and we don't have to give them titles, and we don't have to segment a time to identify it. We just need to allow ourselves to engage with it. So to elaborate a little bit more, I'm enjoying this conversation with you because we're speaking to each other and I'm able to relate to what you're talking about. But if you, you know, if you can identify times when you don't really engage with someone and you're not really, you know, the flow isn't there, then it's far more difficult to add value to that conversation or to that person when you're not resonating with them. And I find that that usually happens when it's, it's a more formal context or when the expectation of the outcome is already predetermined. So for instance, you sent me some questions, but our conversation has gone on tangents and we've come back. You know, we've allowed ourselves to navigate that a little bit organically, for want of a better word. And coming back to one of your first questions that you asked me about how did I get into this space, you know, I only learned through difficult experiences and adversity that I was um, ADD at the age of 42. And, and once I sort of unpacked all that, so many things fell into place and started to make sense about the way that I saw the world and the way that I engaged with the world the pressure that I put myself under. And as soon as I backed off and I allowed myself to acknowledge and, and, and to honor those differences, you know, I found myself in a better space and I found myself able to perform far better. Mm -hmm. So ideally, in terms of um, E squared, what I'd love to be able to do and what I'm advocating for is to give every child that opportunity to find that space, to give every child that, that opportunity to unpack their uniqueness which is a difficult thing to do when it's overladen by a modern reality, which is just so pressurized and so intense. It would be lovely for us to allow these kids to be kids and to trial and to make mistakes in their quest to discover what it is that they want to do. Yeah, so much of what you just said is the reasons we opened a school. <laughs> And you talked about, you know, teacher agency and building social capital. And it's one of the things that I really believe strongly in is giving teachers as much agency as we can. They're professionals. And when we look at countries that really revere teachers, it's a highly educated job. It's a highly professional job. There's a lot of hands-on, you know, in the real world classroom training to really master the art of teaching because the the best educators can do that for kids and can connect with them and can draw out their strengths and can build that relationship and can help them to understand themselves better. It's a real craft. It's a nebulous uh, skill. It's very hard to pinpoint, but you know a great educator when you're talking to them and when, when you see them in action. And what we've tried to do over time is we've tried to compartmentalize those skills and we've tried to label those skills. And I can understand why we need to do that, but I don't know if that's the end game. Do you know what I mean? I, I don't know if that has to be the focus. One of the things that recently came out in Australia post-COVID was there was a large survey of Australian teachers. And the outcome of that survey was quite alarming in terms of their enjoyment of their profession, their capacity to, to actualize their expertise. Mm -hmm. I remember one of the things that I, I learned back in uh, teacher training college was um, on balanced judgment. Our capacity for our professional application of our expertise 
is being eroded by this overburdensome compliance regime, which, again, we can all understand the need for it. We can all understand what's driving it, but that doesn't mean that we have to completely abdicate our professional capacity for our on-balance judgment. When you go see your GP, your GP doesn't have the answer for you immediately. You know, your GP is dealing with the human body in all its complexity. And so the medical professional has to gradually, you know, navigate that and, and, and unpack a few things and before they usually hopefully reach the right answer. And we accept that. We don't expect more from our GPs. So why is it that we expect our teachers to get it right every single time, first time? Why can't our teachers be imperfect in all the beauty that that might be? Because if we allow them to be that, then surely that adds value to the learning experience uh, because they will grow and the person that they're you know, mentoring or, or working with will be able to grow as well. And that's one of the things I loved about working in schools was I found that I grew every year, every day, I grew just as much as the kids did um, because I always learned something from them about myself and about the world. And I don't think there's many jobs that allow you to indulge yourself in that realization. Yeah. And I think you come around to another good point is that the best educators are lifelong learners. They're always curious and they're always learning. But in education, I've found more than anywhere else or in different industry that I've worked, educators love to put things in matrices and they love to have all of the, and a rubric. Yeah. And what is the learning outcome and how do we move them from A to B? But the reality is learning doesn't go from A to B, right? Learning goes from A to C to F back to B and then might end up somewhere around N. I love what you just said there because it reminds me of a, a project I was working on recently where the irony was that the organization was wanting to engage in a process of acknowledging that academic success or learning success didn't need to be represented just as a grade. So they wanted to acknowledge and recognize success in its all different facets and myriad ways, okay? But the irony was that in wanting to do that, they wanted to develop a blueprint. They wanted to develop a map and a sequential step-by-step. -step. If you do this, this, and this, we'll be able to have an environment where children can thrive and, and achieve. And I remember trying to engage in conversations to encourage that it's not about the map and it's not about the, um, the blueprint. It's about some key fundamentals around our mindsets and our aptitudes and how we bring ourselves to that learning experience. So if we try and nurture, actualize th that capacity, then it can be applied to any context and we don't need a map anymore. Because what we're doing is we're encouraging those skills in every learner. And, uh, you know, you can apply that sort of analogy to sailors who venture out in a boat. They know where they'd like to go, but they don't necessarily know exactly how they're going to get there. They're going to need to tack at a particular point when the wind shifts. They might need to go in, uh, around some rocks or they might need to avoid some heavy seas and some waves. And it's those subtleties that we need to nurture in our learners as opposed to the absolutes and the guarantees that our inner you know, selves yearn for because of our own anxieties. And our modern society has, has made us believe that we need to avoid those challenges and we need to avoid experiencing those anxieties. 
but we don't. They're the things that actually help us to grow. So if I may continue just quickly, you, you, you shared your own personal story of your adversity. Now, undoubtedly, it goes without saying that we would rather sometimes not have to face those specific challenges. But Tanya, look what you've achieved through that adversity. You know, you started a school and you used a, be- a beautiful phrase earlier where you said, this is in honor of my daughter. Part of what I've done here is her legacy. So the world wouldn't have had that school, but for the adversity that you went through. And in my very first year of teaching, you know, I was fortunate enough like you to do lots of different careers before becoming a teacher. And I became a teacher at about 30. I remember my, in my first year of teaching, um, one of the children that I was um, looking after, and I was working in a residential academic context, so where the, 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 the kids lived in. And one of the boys, very tragically, was killed on a farming accident on the family farm at the age of 16. I think it was the day after his 16th birthday, in fact. And not long before, I had been through the death and, um, in fact, the disappearance of my oldest brother at sea, which was a, a particularly traumatic experience for our family because his body was never found, you know, despite a, a week-long search and, and, and so on. But because of my lived experience at the time and still going through, uh, I suppose, different stages of grief, which you referred to before, it enabled me to connect with that family in a way which nourished both of us. And to watch them go through their grief and what they did or the manner in which they actualized their grief in a positive way was just amazing because they, together, we started a, an award or a, it, well, it's not really an award. It's, it's, a, it's a way of recognizing uh, student spark. It's called the Spirit Award which stands for um, spark, passion, imagination, resilience, integrity, and the last one was tenacity. So it wasn't an academic, um, it didn't identify academic ability. It solely focused on that character, that real beautiful character, internal character of those who contribute, those who get the most out of themselves, usually by giving to others. What a beautiful legacy for that family to contribute that back to their community. This is now 15 years on and it's still running. It's been taken up by other organizations as one means of acknowledging those skills. But by no means is it the only way and by no means is it thrust upon others, this is the way to do it, this is the blueprint, because it's not. It it, it may not suit another context, Um, but hopefully what it does do as an example, as an analogy, is it helps them to search for their vehicle, which will provide them with with meaning. It can be really limiting and really constricting when we're trying to create a map um, or trying to create a blueprint or trying to live within a rubric. Um, and you kind of alluded to this, but I love to use the analogy of a compass instead of a map. So you know where you're going. You have that direction, whether it's your intuition or your graduate profile or you know, your character traits that lead to a spirit award. And so you have this compass and you know the direction that you want to go. And so when the seas get high or you come to the edge of a cliff, yeah, you have these obstacles and these issues and these challenges, but how do you get around them and then keep moving towards where you want to go? And if the map takes you off a cliff, like, what are you going to do then? Like, this is where the map says to go. But if you have a compass, you have options and you'll get to where you're going and you'll learn so much more along the way. Yeah, I'm on the board of a a local school here and their model is the true north. 
what's your um, North Star? And I find that a beautiful analogy because what he does is he goes back to our inherent humanity of what are our anchor points that we can really rely on whilst allowing our, ourselves to move with the tide. The ocean is a beautiful metaphor for understanding life because, you know, if you can think of an anchor rope that you hold onto, you know, when you're at anchor and uh, attached to a buoy, the boat never sits still and it doesn't stay in the same direction. It moves around. And so to give ourselves that permission and uh, you described working with your teachers and, and you create that safe space where they can explore and they can share their vulnerabilities and they can talk about the challenges that they've faced. Once you do that, you increase the likelihood of reaching excellence and, and allowing those people to get the very best out of themselves. The moment that you prevent them from doing that is when you stifle their creativity, is when you hamper and you artificially create a context that does not allow them to flourish. And through your experiences, you know, working and, and living in, in different jobs and mine, I know that I've worked in organizations that are on either end of the spectrum. And I know where I produce my best work and I know where I'd like to work. So I'd love for my children to also learn that distinction and for them to find where they can be the best version of themselves. I think that's what we all want for all of our kids is to help them just be the best version of themselves. <laughs> There's a beautiful um, uh, YouTube clip by Connie Podesta, and she talks about what do we want for our kids? And she says, you know, so many of us say happiness. And she says, well, of course we want them to be happy, but that's not the end goal. You know, happiness is elusive. If it's all that we want, it's almost hedonistic and it won't be fulfilling. There's a great author, Australian author that I love to refer, Hugh Mackay, and, and he talks about wholeheartedness. He said, pack away the happiness. I'd like to be wholehearted. And what wholehearted means, this notion, it's a notion that we can appreciate the beauty of a, of, of a great day, of, a, of beautiful weather, because we've been through the storm. And so therefore, if that storm helps us to enjoy and appreciate the good weather, then it's a good thing. We needed to have it. We needed to have that storm. And I think, again, you know, coming back to the modern systems that we've set up for ourselves, it tries to, in a quest to protect us or to make things more manageable, we've tried to eliminate all these barriers. And that's to our detriment in the long run, because how can we truly flourish and be the best version of ourselves if we don't know what it is to struggle? And as parents, for our kids, our intuitive uh, or our instinctive response is to, you know, get uh, between them and the obstacle. But sometimes it's better just to stand by them and, and to walk that journey with them. You know, as you are with your kids, you're, you're talking about their journey of dealing with their grief. They'll unpack it individually and uniquely to themselves. Your role is, is to walk that journey with them. There's a beautiful New Zealand author who's now passed away called Celia Lashley who was a fantastic educator who came to education from a prison context. She, she used to work as a prison warden, and she noticed that um, boys in particular, young juvenile boys, were in, these, in this prison system, and she was wondering, well, why does this happen? Um, and so her career then unpacked education from that perspective as an upstream intervention, and her analogy was, as parents, when our kids reach adolescence, we need to step off the bridge and let them walk that bridge from childhood through adolescence into adulthood on the side of the bridge and, and watching them, watching over them, 
sometimes holding their hand if you know if they're losing balance but never carrying them over the bridge because we we hamper them if we do that thank you chris i think we could continue this conversation for another few hours but i want to pause there and i want to give people information on how they can get in touch with you and how they can learn more you're doing so much incredible work with building the capacity of people and really creating human-centered design in a variety of different industries. So how do we get in touch with you? Thanks, Daniel. That's lovely. Uh, thanks for your kind words. Look, the best way to get in touch with me is to reach out through the website or email. So the website is www.educationalecosystems.com.au. It's got all of my models freely available. So I'm a big believer in open access and collaborating together to learn and to grow or email and there's the contact details on the, on the website and I'm more than happy to sort of forward resources or engage with people. I'm very much about hopefully a long relationship and hopefully you and I can continue to communicate as time goes by because I don't really believe in that sort of transactional immediate relationship where it's an immediate give and take. I like to think that as you evolve together, you sort of discover what it is that you can contribute to each other. I agree. And I think we have a lot to learn together. I think this will be a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us for the Rebel Educator podcast. Well done, Tanya. Thanks for all your work as well. Cheers. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. I'd invite you to check out rebeleducator.com, where you can see all of our upcoming workshops, webinars, and professional development opportunities. UpAcademySF.com, where you can see our current progressive elementary school in action. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Keep resisting tradition, Rebel Educators. Rebel Educators.